0: Hi, I'm Melissa Ritz, and this is Served, a podcast about female military veterans and their experiences in and out of uniform. In this episode, I'm joined by special guest Mary Tamora and her daughter Barbara. Mary, a Nisei, her first-generation born Japanese American, shares her family's experiences of being forcibly removed from their home in Southern California transported, and incarcerated in Arizona's Gila relocation camp after the bombing of Pearl Harbor in 1941. Facing racial prejudice and oppression, Mary and her family's deep sense of faith, family, and community carried them through years of uncertainty. Mary's decision to take advantage of a new federal program, the U.S. Cadet Nurse Corps, changed the trajectory of her life. Mary reflects on her historical journey with grace and resolve, Her daughter Barbara shares how she learned of her family's history and how that shaped her own life. Mary and Barbara, thank you both for making time for me today. Mary, you came to my attention by way of my friend Howard High, who shared a YouTube link to an interview you did with the Go For Broke National Education Center about your experiences with the U.S. Cadet Nursing Corps during World War II, specifically as a Nisei cadet nurse, which we'll learn more about in a moment. And Barbara, you were in that interview, and with a bit of cyber-stalking on my part, I reached out to you via Facebook, and here we are today. So I like to start off each episode with the origin story. Mary, please share with us where you were born, growing up on Terminal Island, and a bit about your mother and father.
1: Okay. Uh, I grew up on Terminal Island until I was about 16 or 17, when the war broke out. So during that time, it was a very nice place to grow up. There were about 3,000 Japanese there. And it was more or less like a Japanese village. Most of the men were fishermen. Otherwise, they had, you know, jobs in the store or something like that. And all the women were either mothers or working in the cannery. So it was an atmosphere that we looked after each other. The men were always out on the boat and they would be gone for weeks. And the mothers were always working in the cannery. So the neighborhood watched each other. Everybody knew what everybody else was doing, so as to speak. But it was a nice community where you felt very comfortable. You could go anywhere and you you had no fear of being molested or somebody coming to hit you or anything like that. Everybody was kind and considerate of each other. And if you did something wrong, of course, the parents heard about it right away (laughs) because somebody would tell them, you know, all the kids were very well behaved. And we learned a lot about Japanese culture, being aware of people's feeling, being empathetic, being considerate, being kind to each other and looking after each other. And we always had respect for the elders. We never talked back to our parents or to anybody older than us. We always listened. And so, you know, it was a very nice community. And I do remember going to the beach and having a wonderful time swimming, riding the waves or going to find crabs in the harbor area. And we had so much fun. And at the same time, I was learning flower arrangement. I was learning to play the piano. And all the time, I was very active at church. We used to go hear uh, Miss Swanson tell a story about King Arthur and the tribes. And it was a very wonderful time we had. You know. There was no crime, so as to speak, committed because everybody knew that if you did something wrong, it would be all over the island in 24 hours. (laughs) So everybody was just on good behavior all the time. And so it was a wonderful life growing up in such a community. And we had a lot of uh, festivals, Japanese festivals, like Girls' Day, Boys' Day, or in the Japanese school, we had our graduation parties, and then there were Ken, ken Kenjinkai, meaning certain prefecture in Japan used to have uh, picnics for their own Ken people. So we used to go to those uh, Ken picnics. And then it was an island that we all had these activities going on all the time. we never depended on the government. And so the men in our community uh, cleared off some of the sagebrushes and they built a baseball field all by themselves. And you know, it was a community that worked with each other without any feeling of, you know, you did you you gotta do this or you gotta do this. Everybody was just willing to help each other. And my father was quite a leader and he was, uh, he used to be a Sergeant in the Russian Japanese war. So he was uh, kind of a leader. And so he organized a lot of things in the community and helped. And my mother was just very hardworking person. She had five children, but we looked after each other. My oldest brother, was very good uh, doing kendo and you know, into his eighties, he was still not teaching kendo, but he was giving uh, certain points to people who were learning kendo. He was that good. And my younger brother became a dentist. So the girls all had, (laughs) we were very uh, much like just wives to our spouses. That's all. But anyhow, life on Term Nighting was just wonderful. I don't know anywhere else that we could have had such a good time and, you know, be free and know that you're safe from everything. But we used to go to San Pedro Dela, uh Junior High School and San Pedro High School uh, when we got of age. But even at that time, we used to cross the ferry and walk about two miles to the school, and we didn't have any problems at all. After the war, when the war started, things kind of changed. But then, before then, it was just a happy place to live.
0: So, for the listeners, Terminal Island is in Southern California near Long Beach. Yes. And you were born there. Yes. And can you share with us your
1: birthday? My birthday was June twenty second, 1924. So today I'm 97. (laughs) Can you
0: believe that?
1: (laughs) Well, I've had such a wonderful life that I thank God every day for the life that he has given me.
0: Mary, you speak so fondly and lovingly of your family and community on Terminal Island. And as you mentioned, everything changed on December 7th, 1941, when Pearl Harbor was bombed. Can you share with us what that experience was like for you and your family and your community?
1: Yes, it was the most terrible. I, when I look back on my life, I think that was the most terrible thing that happened to us. Uh, on December 7th, when, the, uh, when Pearl Harbor was bombed, my father and I were collecting donations for the church. See, he was always a leader trying to do something for the church. And he sent us to Christian church, whereas he was a Buddhist himself. But anyhow, that night about 1130, a couple of FBI came and said to to my father, get dressed, we're taking you. So he had to put his suit on and uh, we didn't know what was happening. And then the other guy uh, watched him get dressed while the other guy went all over the house poking at everything to see if there were any contraband or any guns or any kind of thing that was related to Japan. But anyhow, he was taken that night. And the next morning when we woke up, we had a little grocery store. The grocery store door was sealed and nobody could come in or out of that store. And this happened to all the stores, most of the stores on Terminal Island. Everything was closed, shut down. We couldn't even take the ferry to go to school because they kept us on the island. And uh, I guess I forgot to tell you that there were only two ways to come onto the island and one was by ferry from San Pedro to Terminal Island. And the other one was by by Wilmington and you had to come by car, you couldn't walk. And it was about five miles from Wilmington to the island where most of the Japanese people live. Well anyhow, December 8th, everybody was so worried. Where did our fathers go? you know, what is happening to us? And by the end of the year, see this happened, my father was taken on December 7th. By the end of the year, most of the fishermen were collect, uh, picked up by the FBI and taken. So imagine this island had no older men and old. Uh, the only male person on the island were just, high school graduates or college grad, few college graduates. The island was just women and children and the women could not work in the cannery because they were not hiring any Japanese as a cannery worker. So there was no income, no men. Imagine that kind of a place and Here we are, left alone in this island, wondering what's going to happen next. Uh, We finally were able to go to school. But when we went to San Pedro, we would hear people yelling, go home, Japs. You know, there was some sort of a prejudice. And I was surprised because there were a lot of Italian fishermen at that in San Pedro. And see, Italy was with uh, Germany fighting the war, too. But they, they said, go home, Japs. And it really made you feel like, gosh, I guess we are different, mm. you know. Well, anyhow, on February of 1942, the Executive Order 9066 was posted by Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And it said that we're not to travel more than five miles from where we're located. Well, that didn't make too much sense to us because we didn't have any car. And the only thing we could do was walk. And where can we walk to except by ferry to San Pedro? Well, in the mid-February, there was another poster uh, posted on a lot of the places saying that all the terminal island of Japanese ancestry had to leave the island in 48 hours. You could imagine what went through all our mind, 48 hours. And it it didn't say where you could go, what you could take or nothing. Just say we had to leave the vacate the island in 48 hours. Well, gosh, everybody was just petrified. They didn't know what to take. They didn't know whether to take warm clothing or whether to take pots and pans because we didn't know where we were going to go. And look at the people who had stores. Uh, They had to get rid of all their inventory. And my goodness, we had a very small grocery store. And so my for my brother and older sister, packed up all the canned goods and was able to take it to another friend in Los Angeles to another store where they could sell it for us. Well, I kept on thinking about, what about these uh, people who had restaurants? What did they do with all the inventory of dishes and, and, you know, coffee makers and what have you? And look at uh, the warehouse where they were selling nets or the fishing equipment, what did they do, you know? And you think, you know, being trying to pack something in 48 hours, you try yourself, see what you want to take with you. What is most essential for you and your family? And at the same time, while this was going on, we had people coming from different places trying to buy refrigerators for five dollars two dollars washing machine for two dollars and I had to sell my piano for five dollars and oh that was a terrible feeling you know because I wanted to become a piano teacher and uh, you know the piano was gone.
0: And how old were you at this time?
1: I was about 16 at that time and anyhow we all had to leave the island in 48 hours. Fortunately, there were some Quakers and some Baptist people, a lot of volunteers from uh, various churches in Los Angeles that came and helped the island islanders back and take them to their churches. But the whole horrible thing was, we didn't know where our friends went to, we didn't know where uh, anybody was going to. And uh, later on, I heard that my girlfriend went to a Buddhist uh, recreation center. There were 25 families all in this recreation center and they slept there for about a week until they found, you know, the friends who could take them or somebody who had an extra room where they could move to. It was the most terrible experience that we all had to go through. And uh, to this day, I do not know where some of the people went. You lost all contact with your friends at that time. And fortunately our family was able to rent a house in Venice. And so we moved there with four other families, five, five families, together in this big house and imagine all the confusion. And, and we had to go to school too. We went to Venice High School. Oh, I went to Venice High School for about two months. And then we were sent to Tularia Assembly Center where all the Japanese were taken from that Los Angeles area and put into camps. Now Tulare Assembly Center was a horse racing place. Uh, And when we got there, uh, we were given a stall. Imagine a horse's stall. And my brother had to fill uh, a bag with hay and that was to be our bed. And my sister, both my older sister and I tried to clean the wall and the floor because they were full of dirt or feces from the the horses. And we didn't do a good job. But anyhow, we tried our best to clean the place so we could at least sleep there. We had all our meals at a mess hall. And this is where I learned what it is to eat in a big hall with everybody talking, complaining about the same thing over and over. But anyhow, we were in Tulare for about two months. Then we were going to be sent to another relocation center, which was going to be a little more permanent. So we were taken by train, and it took a day and a half uh, to go to Tulare, I mean to Gila.
0: Mm -hmm. And Tulare was between Fresno and Bakersfield in California, and the Gila Relocation Center was near Tucson, Arizona.
1: Yes. And at that time, all the windows were closed and black shades. So we didn't know whether we were going east or west or north or south. And we finally got to to Larry, I mean to Gila, and you were assigned to any uh, barracks. And we went to Butte, uh, Gila, and uh, we had, a since there were seven of us, we had a large room. But in a large room, we had to partition off the room because my sister had a little boy. So she had her own little section. My brother, two brothers had to have another area. And then my sister uh, and I, and my mother had another area but this was the way we had to partition rooms. And in Hela, the thing that I hated most was going to the bathroom. It was one long hard wood with holes in it. And you sat there, no partition. And you sat there and did your business. And then once in a while, there would be a gush of water and it would wash all the things you did. You never knew when there was coming. And even taking a shower was one huge big room with shower heads and you had to go and wash yourself there. And then if you, like my older sister had uh, Robert who was still using diapers, she had to go to the basin and wash her diapers by herself. There was no washing machine. And then she would bring it home and dry the diapers at in the house. Because, you know, it was just a hard living. But anyhow, uh, I finished my high school there. And uh, I was able to get a diploma from San Pedro High School because I had all my credits ready for college. In the meantime, I started working at the hospital because there was a good job for a young person. And I liked the idea of being a helper to people who are sick. And I enjoyed talking to them, taking care of them and uh, looking after their needs. And this is where I got this idea of, hey, this is not such a bad idea to be a nurse. And then I talked to one of the RNs that used to work there. And she's the one that encouraged me to uh, sign up for this Nurses Cadet Corps that was being organized by the government. It was to be free. I mean, no no money involved. And if you qualified, you were sent to a hospital to work as a cadet nurse. And so that's what I did. I felt that I wanted an education or train myself to be something rather than just a housewife. And so I signed up to be a nurse. And this is where, you know, the thing about loyalty and things like that come up. But I just felt like, you know, even if we were put into camps and the government did something that was unlawful, they were trying to help us in a way by offering this kind of opportunity to get educated. So I took that chance and signed up to become a cadet nurse.
0: Miss Mary, I have a few questions, if you don't mind, Uh before we move forward with the cadet nurse program. When you were being taken from your home, to the Tulare Assembly Center in California, and later to the Gila Relocation Center in Arizona, was was it the FBI escorting you?
1: No, it's the soldiers, really. Soldiers. Okay. Yeah. So I
0: know there was a lot of discrimination and fear at that time, and as you said, there were a lot of racial slurs directed at you and your community, and. You're American citizens. How did
1: the soldiers treat you? Uh, very. Uh, I think they were being professional, you know. Okay. They weren't uh, yelling at us or anything. They were just doing their duty. And uh, at Terminal Island, <clears throat> they just stood around and, and watched that we didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. That's about all. They were very quiet.
0: Did you ask questions like as you're being transported or w- was the energy like don't ask anything, just stay quiet? Yes,
1: yeah. that, that was the Japanese way of doing things. You just followed the authorities and you did what you were told to do. And uh, I think Japanese are not really troublemakers or at least the group that I was with, they didn't raise any fuss. We just followed directions and did what we were told to do. Yeah. Thank you. I know there's a lot of stories about different people, you know, defying the government to go into camp and all that. But, you know, those are individuals. And I have to admire them for their courage of doing something like that. But, you know, here I am a girl and I can't do anything like that, you know. So I just went along with what the government told us to do, yeah.
0: And at that time when you're in Arizona and Gila, was your father with you? Did he, had you guys no, reunited? No.
1: No. No, he never came back until about 1945. He, he was interned in, first in Montana and then in uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico, but we never saw him. He used to write letters, but it was censored. And they cut out the letters so you you couldn't read anything except to know that he was there and he was doing okay, you know. But he never talked about it to us, about what happened in the camps there. But there were a lot of Japanese and there were some Italians and some Germans, but he never said anything bad about anybody. Yeah. Wow.
0: You know, I don't know if I would have that kind of stoicism. Thank you for sharing all that with us. So moving forward with the cadet nursing program, I did some research because I wasn't familiar with this program. And during World War II, there was a shortage of nurses in the U.S. So in 1943, the Bolton Act allowed the U.S. Public Health Service to establish the U.S. Cadet Nurse Corps, which provided an abbreviated 30-month education – instead of the standard 36-month education, in nursing programs across the country. It was authorized by Congress on June 15, 1943, and signed into law by President Roosevelt on July 1st. And as you mentioned, it was tuition-free, and they paid for books and uniforms, and each cadet received a stipend.
1: Yes. $15 a year, I mean a month.
0: (laughs) And I did a little inflation adjustment in 1943, $15 a month is the equivalent to $236 a month today. (laughs) And that actually $15 a month was often more than what you would earn in the camp as a worker in the camps. You were make about $12 a month.
1: Yes. (laughs) But you know what, we had to buy stockings. We ran out of stockings so fast being a nurse because if we were working and walking all the time, we had to buy our shoes, we had to buy other things, you know, underwear, and things like that. The incidentals were pretty much what the $15 went for.
0: So this opportunity you hear about and you're in the camp working as a nurse's aide, correct? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you hear about this opportunity, and mm-hmm. you're just graduating from high school, so mm-hmm. the timing is perfect. Perfect, and, yes. And then you applied to?
1: I applied to St. Mary's in Rochester, Minnesota, and that's where I was accepted. And at that time, when we went there, uh, there were about 60 or 70 Nisei girls who were working as nurses, I didn't get to know everybody, but I got to know the girls that were in my class very well. And we had a lot of fun. Minnesota was a nice place too. It was cold, but a lot of snow and ice. And I learned to ice skate there. And the people in Rochester were quite sympathetic towards the Nisei girls. And they would invite us to churches and uh, we felt very comfortable. Yeah. And the doctors were all very nice to us. Yeah. They, there wasn't any kind of a prejudice or, you know, you're Japanese. So, you know, not that kind of thing at all. Yeah.
0: Uh, so I did some reading that uh, a lot of nursing schools, there was prejudice against some of the Japanese applicants. But St. Mary's School of Nursing in Minnesota it admitted the most Nisei students uh, at the time in 1943 with 42 students. Uh, and the Cadet Nurse Corps was a non-military program, but the students saw nursing as an avenue to serve their country and also prove their mm-hmm. loyalty mm-hmm. to the mm-hmm. U.S. at this time. And Nisei, for the listeners, is a first-generation mm-hmm. Japanese-American?
1: says, yes.
0: What, what was mm-hmm. some of the training that you received?
1: It was like a regular nurses training, but the sisters at St. Mary's were just beautiful, wonderful people. We, they were very kind, and, you know, like any sisters you see in any religious uh, organization, you know they're very compassionate people. And they treated all the nieces like that. You never felt like, you know, the sisters are going to tattle on you if you did something wrong, you know. Then we not that kind of people. So the atmosphere was just good. And I know my classmates and I, although we had to work very hard, we knew that the sisters were working just as hard as we were. And I have seen sisters uh, Cleaning the latrines, doing you know scrubbing the floors and things like that. So you felt like you you have to do the same thing like the sisters were doing, and and we had a good education. Yeah.
0: So what year was this that you went into the nursing program?
1: Uh, I went in in 1944, and then I graduated in 47 but the war ended in 1945 and so uh, we were all kind of worried that the cadet nurse program would be cancelled but the government allowed everybody who was in the program to continue their studies and graduate and uh, they let us finish the whole uh, nursing education with all the stipend that we received every month and things like that. And the education was free at the same time. And the obligation that we were supposed to go into the armed forces after we graduated, that was suspended. And so we didn't have to go. So imagine that all of this wonderful experience and education, we got actually free. And
0: then because the war ended, like you said, the program also in 1945, the program also dissolved because there was no need for it and yes. in 1948. Yeah. It only existed for 27 months. So not enough time for everybody to finish that 30-month education no. training. So w- when you graduated, what was your next step?
1: Well, we stayed in Minnesota to take our our finals, you call we called it, to get your RN status. And so all the Nisei girls that were in my class, we stayed together and studied and we all graduated with the RN from Minnesota. And the reason that we stayed there too, we wanted the RN from Minnesota because it was recognized in any of the other states. Like if I, when I worked in New York City, it was recognized. As a, I was recognized as an RN and it, when I w- came to California, it was recognized again. So we didn't have to take this state board of examination every time we went to another uh, state. And that was the advantage of graduating from Minnesota.
0: And what was your favorite part of nursing?
1: I think I like uh, medical nursing better, best where you know, you don't know what's wrong with the patient, but, uh, you know, the doctors are doing all kinds of tests and you're helping the doctors. Uh, I wrote in my in my uh, essay that I took care of uh, Harry Hopkins. He had ulcers and I used to take him milk and cream every hour. But he was the kind of, you know, he was in a high position, was Secretary of War at that time. You know, he just took the milk. Didn't say thank you or anything. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, uh, it, it's funny how uh, you learn to accept people for what they are. And I even uh, talked to Helen Keller. And she, she was not my patient. But I thought, oh, I'd just like to go see what she looks like, you know. And so at night, I went to her room and she recognized my footsteps because it was not the regular nurse's footsteps that she heard. She said, who are you?
0: (laughs) That's amazing.
1: uh, that there's so many people came through the Mayo Clinic and our hospital was associated with the Mayo Clinic. What did
0: your family think of all this? I mean, like you said, most women were mothers at home and took care of the house, and then you totally shifted and went in a very different direction. What did your mother think? What did your family think? Yeah,
1: they never said anything to me about it, but they knew that I was very independent and I had a mind of my own. And they knew that if I wanted to do something, I'd do it. You know, it's just like my piano. I really wanted to uh, be a piano teacher. So I practice every day. And, uh, you know, sometimes they wonder why, why I was spending so much time there. But they knew I was very determined to do anything I wanted to do. I wanted, I didn't want to be a regular housewife because I think that's very dull. I wanted to be something else. (laughs) I agree.
0: I feel the same way. Um, So how long was your family in this relocation center in Arizona?
1: Yes, my family, uh, my Mother and my sister with the little child, uh, they were there till about 1945 when the war ended and they were going to close the camp. So they had to move out. So uh, my sister had a relative from her husband's side in Denver. So the family moved over to Denver and they were there until uh, both my sister and I came back to California and we worked, saved our money, bought a little house, and then we were able to call the family down to Los Angeles. Yeah. And what was that reunion like? Uh, we I hadn't seen my mother since I left camp, so it was quite cheerful, but it was so nice to see everybody were still living and in good health. And although we had had very trying times, you know, we all survived.
0: Sure. And you were a homeowner and had a profession where you could support yourself. And you shared with me that you were happily married.
1: Yes. Oh, my husband was an artist. So I learned all about art. And that was another field that I knew nothing about. But we went to New York right away. And uh, it was another life. Again, and New York City is a wonderful place to live. My God, my husband and I had a nice time there. We were very poor, but you know, subways were only five or 10 cents and we drove the subway up and down every weekend. (laughs) So we saw a lot of New York. When were you in New York City? Uh, 1950 to about, uh he we were there in in the new york area until about 54 it was a new life and i loved it yeah
0: you continued nursing you, throughout your life it was it was always a profession that you were involved in you must have seen such an evolution in the medical field yes
1: yes oh yes uh, when i was in training like i said you know when we took care of a cataract patient who had cataract surgery, they used to come back. We used to have two, uh, well, it was it was a heavy pillow on both sides of their face, so they could not move their face at all. And they had to lie still in bed and we had to feed them three times a day. That was a chore. <laughs> but anyway, nowadays, if you have cataract surgery, you're up the next day or that same day and you go home the same day. That's the difference in med- medicine, you know. And all the medications are so different. We used to have to mix our own penicillin and that came out in about nineteen forty forty four, I think. Now it's all, all prepared and ready to use, you know, things like that.
0: Have you always had this within you to see the silver lining, to take advantage of opportunities to move forward. Because I, I, I think yes. as a teenager to have the environment, that uprooting of your community, not knowing, not having answers. You know, we, we get information so easily now with the internet and instantaneous, but when you were going through all that and you're just holding on to faith, you've got your family with you. I think that that could really keep someone suppressed, but you Mm -hmm. seem to, and correct me if I'm wrong, really have taken advantage of opportunity and moved forward.
1: Yes, I guess I was always like that. I had a lot of faith in God and that he would lead me to the right direction and I would meet the right people. And I have met some wonderful people in my life.
0: As we said earlier, in 1945, the cadet nurses were providing 80% of the nursing care in the hospitals in the United States. And that Corps was operational until 1948. And the cadet nurse Corps are the only uniform Corps members during World War II who are not recognized as veterans. And when I reached out to your daughter, Barbara, to see if you'd be interested in doing the podcast, she said that you had expressed that you were not quote unquote a veteran or recognized in that way with your contributions in this community. And I disagree because I think the sacrifices you made um, are very valid and I see you as a sister in arms. (laughs) And so I'm just, I'm so honored that you're sharing your time with me and to have you on as a podcast guest because I think you stand shoulder to shoulder with every other veteran that I've had on the program.
1: Thank you. You're welcome. But, you know, I didn't serve as a cadet nurse. You know, that's why I don't feel like I should be, you know, given given the same honor as the cadet nurse who really went and served. Because we were still in training when the war ended, and we didn't have to do a thing. I mean, we didn't have to go into the armed service or anything. So I feel like, you know, The cadet nurse tag should not be on us or me anyway. I don't feel that way.
0: I hear that, but (laughs) I think your intention was there and the opportunity, the intention was there. You, What you went through, especially during a time of the racism and how you looked as being a Japanese-American woman um, with the immigrant family, I... I just can't imagine what that must've been like, some of the, the things that you went through in that time period, but you wanted to give back. You wanted to serve. You put yourself in the position to, had the opportunity, if the program had continued, you would have continued through it. So I feel like your heart was in the right place. And um, I understand what you're saying, but I just feel like that is a um, something that should be retroactively recognized. And
1: I just wanted you to know that. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. It's good that you feel that way. But, you know, I have my own feelings about that. Mm
0: -hmm. I understand. And I
1: respect that.
0: How long were you a nurse in total for? All my
1: life, I guess, until I retired in about 1989. Yeah. I was working because I wanted the money so I could travel. (laughs) <laughs> I love that uh, my husband made i my husband made enough money but I still felt like I should contribute to the travel so and we have gone to many many places and I don't know how many times we have gone to Europe I can't I'm sure about five times we've gone to Europe and we've gone to Japan about seven times you see so you know, we just love to travel and we have traveled every year or so after the children all grew up. Mm-hmm. Well,
0: in reading yeah. your bio, how busy you were as a young girl, just so involved in your community uh, yeah. and always working and being a mother and traveling. Do you know how to retire?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Are you still, still go, go,
0: go? Do you still have yeah, a lot of it? Yeah. I I imagine I'm still still
1: working for the church a little bit, you know. I'm doing a rummage sale for the church to raise money. (laughs) That's wonderful. Good for you.
0: Keeps you young. That's why you're so vibrant.
1: Well, you know, I love to work and do some kind of project all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, I just can't sit sit still.
0: I love that. So, Barbara, as I shared with you on a call earlier. I didn't learn about this part of American history in school, and I didn't know about the Japanese-American camps, internment camps, until I was in my 20s. Did you learn about this in school, or did you learn about it through your family connection?
2: I also learned about it when I signed up for a Japanese-American history class in college. I had seen the painting that I showed you, my dad did, of looking back on the farm that they were leaving behind, And he never even at the time explained why he had painted that. And my mother never talked about it because they were told not to talk about it. And yes, it wasn't until I was 20 years old as well that I heard about the story about what happened. And one of the assignments was to interview your parents to find out what their experience was being relocated and, and all that. So I was also quite surprised. And even doing these interviews, I hear more and more detail because interviewees like you are asking. And mom never really wanted to burden others or share the story because I think she had such patriotism and loyalty to the government that told her not to. And that kind of is sad that you would carry that with you all those years but because she was obedient and even today you can see there's no bitterness and resentment i respect how positive she is and even when talking about it she pulls what little positive there was into the story that she tells today mm mm-hmm. yeah. Mm
0: -hmm, I agree. And I sense that in the stories the other Nisei cadet nurses shared in the book, Nisei Cadet Nurse of World War II, Patriotism in Spite of Prejudice by Thelma M. Robinson. Mary's photo is on the cover, along with three other girls. And although Mary's story isn't included in this book, there are stories from 19 other girls who are Nisei cadet nurses, and they all have a tone of perseverance and optimism. So Barbara, when you were interviewing your parents for the school assignment, what was that discovery like? I mean, you must have been shocked.
2: I I was, but because they didn't share a lot of detail and make it sound like it was any big deal, um, until I heard more details about it through my class and through some films that I had seen and, um what the 440, what the army group my dad belonged to and what my mother did, they shared very little with me. And so I wasn't feeling like I could ask a lot of questions because I didn't, maybe I was so selfish when I was younger. I didn't think beyond what they told me to dig deeper and to ask, how did you feel? Or I remember her telling me about the piano and, which I could relate to. If I had saved up to buy something I wanted and then somebody took it away, I could really relate to those, those feelings of being the same age of her story.
0: Did you learn anything new about your family through
2: this? I did. Because of the Nisei Cadet book, I read it. And then I wanted to know more about the niece, the cadet nurse program. And so I had gone on Wikipedia and went online and read several other books and stories about what these nurses did and how special they were. And particularly about my mom, I thought she had gone maybe with a bunch of friends, but she said she went by herself. And she told me her mother supported her. And she wasn't looking for a raw, raw party. Oh, look at me, what I'm doing. She went and did it. And I'm sure it was difficult and scary, but she never talked about how she was by herself or that she was lonely or thought about why am I doing this? She really, truly wanted to serve the country. And she really wanted to do something for her own future because she knew she wanted to be a teacher but she was told because your father is incarcerated in the federal prison, that's not going to happen for you. So because of the circumstances, she took on to an opportunity and made something great to secure her own life and her own career. And I and I admire that. And all those traditions that she brought from Terminal Island, um, the strong traditions from Japan about being polite and sharing and doing your best and never shaming the family name and feeling that you're privileged to live here in this free country. She taught my brother and I those same principles that even today, she continues to have sort of an old fashioned way about her and expects that of us, even though people don't do those things anymore and aren't that way. She feels very strongly that it, it builds character in you and it's the right thing to do. And um, I am grateful that I had a mother that not just talks about how to be, but showed how to be through the stories that she so humbly kept to herself. So I'm so glad that you in your questions caused me to look into it more. And I learned so much about my mother and the walk she did to be the great
1: lady she is today. Don't say a great lady. It's, <laughs> just, it's just me, you know. It's just my way I was brought up.
0: Yeah, those values all lend themselves to making your community better, making your life better, making people want to be around you, making you a leader and um, Barbara, I'm just so glad you reached. You responded to a Facebook message that we were able to make this happen. Well, I think
2: it's great because I posted it on Facebook a couple of weeks ago, and I must have got over 500 positive comments about how spry and what a great attitude. And you would never think she's 97, and how sharp she is. You know. And to be able to tell that story so clearly with detail, I'm really amazed.
1: Gosh, I, I, I just feel so honored to have you talk to me, but I, I don't feel like I'm anybody special. There's a lot of ladies and men who have done the same thing. You know, there's other people who have contributed more to the community and, uh, you know, it's good
0: yeah it is good well i thank you for your contribution
1: you're welcome
0: i thank you both for sharing your time with me today thank, okay. you.
1: thank you for allowing us to share
0: and thank you for listening